Before we get into this very special podcast, I just want to give you a little bit more context. A few weeks ago, we did an episode on the cult classic Wet Hot American Summer, directed by David Wayne and edited by Mac Radica. And this is the second time that we did a scene and the actual filmmakers behind it reached out to us, inviting us to go even deeper on their work. We had editor Roger Nygaard from Veep and Curb You Enthusiasm on the show. That's episode 42. And now director David Wayne invited us over to his house so that we can look at some earlier cuts of Wet Hot American Summer and revisit that scene we discussed in episode 48. I'll give you a summary of that scene in a little bit, but here's a quick overview of Wayne's work because we talked about a bunch of his films and to be honest, we got a little carried away. So just in case, if you're not familiar with David Wayne's work, he's done a bunch of feature films, all comedy, all very unique, off-the-wall type of stuff. His biggest studio hit was Role Models with Paul Rudd and Sean William Scott, but he's done some crazy films like The Ten where you get to enjoy or cringe seeing Vinona Ryder fuck a dummy. Wanderlust is a film with Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston. They camp out with a wacky commune. They Came Together is a spoof parody on the romantic comedy genre and it stars Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler. Wayne has always assembled an amazing cast in his projects. And there are a bunch of recurring collaborators that he works with since the very beginning of his career, when he was part of the comedy troupe The State and later Stella. This includes Ken Marino, Michael Showalter, Michael Ian Black, Joe Lotruglio, Kerry Kenny, and many more, often co-writing and producing these projects together. The State also became a comedy sketch show on MTV back in the days, and Wayne produced and directed a ton of TV projects since then, like Children's Hospital on Adult Swim, as well as the upcoming Medical Police on Netflix. Also on Netflix, Wayne directed the feature A Futile and Stupid Gesture with Will Forte, who stars as Duck Kenny from National Lampoon. So, this is just to give you an overview. It was really cool to talk to Wayne specifically about editing and digging into some of the scene work and shot list. So, enjoy what you're about to hear. Hello, welcome. This is TGE, the podcast. I'm here in a very special place. We're at David Wayne's residence. Hello. And we're so excited to do this episode because it's so nice. Like we're trying to do something very specific on the podcast about editing and looking at scenes. And then when somebody reaches out to us, that is actually the maker of that scene. I mean, that's so awesome. Really good validation for what we're trying to do. Tyler, what is it that we're trying to do here? I think that's a really cool, good point. It's so infrequent that you get to hear from the actual auspices or auspices, the creatives behind the telling of the story on set before it gets to post. It's so cool to get the opportunity to kind of pick your brain on your editing process and what you've learned from editing. So thank you for being here. It's great to be here. And the other side of it is just as true as a maker of something in this era of podcasts where people get really specific and to have this one that I, that I really like that's devoted entirely to editing and, and the ability to go deep. And then when I heard, I saw, I just came up that you talked about uh, our movie i was like oh my goodness and listening it's and to be able to drop you a line on twitter and be like hey that was cool and then here we are it's really neat and here you are at my house at 3489 angelino avenue yes <laughs> everyone should come by right very here. nice <laughs> and we're here because we might be looking at some different versions of your movie 
Yeah, I mean, I don't want to like tempt you too much, but I actually have right here many, many different cuts and dailies and versions of everything I've done over the past 30 years. Oh, great, great. <laughs> so you can pick what you want. <laughs> well, maybe before we get into the scene itself, maybe we'll just sort of just talk a little bit about your background. Sure. I mean, there's so much to talk about. I'm sure you've been on a million podcasts where you sort of dug into your past, your body of work. But they've all been erased, though. Oh, okay. Yeah, we erased them this morning. So. Um, you went to NYU. I did. I grew up in Ohio. I went to NYU uh, as an undergrad uh, in the film program. Okay, so you actually are a trained filmmaker. Well, I mean, to the degree that film school trains you to be a trained right. filmmaker. I mean, I did. I did learn a lot there that I that I still draw from even today. Uh, it was good to have that basis outside of the. You learn so much by doing it. Um, and I learned a little bit by doing before I went to, you know, I, I was making little movies from when I was eight, but the formal training in film school was definitely a good element for me. And then you were also part of a comedy group at the same time. Yes. And when I was in college, truthfully, the comedy troupe that I was in, which later be became known as the state, uh, was more of my focus than my schoolwork. I see. And that's outside of NYU or that was part of the program? It was not part of the program. We were okay. all NYU students, but we didn't get even any support from the school to do what we were doing. We just were felt like bands of outlaws and I created our attitude over the years. So you weren't really like auditing acting classes or anything at NYU. It was straight making films? Well, as part of the film program, you did take classes in acting and other things related. And you also took regular liberal arts courses as well. Okay. Um, but again, I, my main thing was the comedy troupe, <laughs> I see. um, instead of going to school. So all the people in the state, were they all going to NYU with you? Is that kind of how you found each other? And yeah. was everyone in the film program or was there like, Oh, we got a philosophy dude. We got, uh, well, it was basically dude. split between, you know, the, the larger college at NYU is the Tisch school of the arts mm -hmm. and the university was 50,000 students. Or something. Right. But the, the, uh, this was all Tisch students acting mm. split between acting and film. Um, but we met uh, basically because I was actually in a different comedy troupe my freshman year. And then instead of getting new members for the comedy troupe that we started like a JV squad B team uh, and this B team became the state. Wow. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of the few talents, stupid gesture kind yeah. of like the way that, that you were drawing from that. The parallels were not lost on me either. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, darn. And then how did... Like, how did you make the transition from, okay, you're in a comedy group, you're doing a lot of work, you are a film student, you're making a lot of shorts, and then you combined the two? Well, the, it was a sketch comedy troupe, and yes. we did these live shows. But short films were always sort of an element of what we did because half of us were film students. Okay. And there were two of us in particular that were really directors and really serious about it i guess and um it always we always had sort of a cinematic bent to what we were doing and then we really had a series of lucky things happen which was i was interning at mtv at the time okay. mm -hmm. and they were putting together this show called you wrote it you watch it which involved people telling or writing in funny stories and then the show would act them out and we huh sort of brazenly came up with our version of how we would want to do the show. And because they asked me if I wanted to be a director on the show for hire. Mm -hmm. And I came back the next day, having gone back and spent all night making three shorts with the group, um, our way of doing it, which was interviewing people on the street and intercutting it with our reenactments of their interviews. Mm -hmm. And the, I think the people at MTV were 
as impressed with how quickly and completely we did this demo uh-huh. without being asked um, as much as anything else. And so they hired us as a group of 11 of us uh, with a salary of one to split um, to create these segments for this show. Wow. And that began our, our uh, sort of road towards having our own show at MTV. And to what degree, because I think this all ties together in a cool way, one, you closing the loop on kind of inventing the drunk history model and then finally (laughs) playing Julius Caesar on it. And then also, to what degree was narrative content or sketch even part of MTV at that point? So it was like pre-Beavis and Butthead? No, we were the first, I believe it was was around the time of Beavis and Butthead. But remember, at the time, Beavis and Butthead was little interstitials in between music videos and around music videos. Every show on MTV mostly had to do with music videos or was like a, you know, house of style, like news based shows. Mm-hmm. And so the crew, the, the production at MTV was ENG crews that were, you know, a, a camera and a, and a bounce board and a lav mic. Right. Uh, and so we're going out and trying to shoot narrative sketches and right. they had no, we shot them with the NG crews uh-huh. <laughs> um, or a bunch of them. We shot basically a third of the material was my unit was, we called it second unit, which was essentially me going out with our high eight camera and us in the group acting as our own crew. I mean, wow. basically what YouTube style you would call sure. it, and we, but it was many, many years before YouTube. And so we were doing those kind of things. And I think that's a good lesson to everyone listening because there's a mentality when people are just getting into filmmaking and stuff of like, oh, cool, I'm going to finish this film program and then I'm going to go direct, I don't know, Inception 2. People don't mm-hmm. understand the value of starting at the bottom and how that's the only place to start. And you had an internship job at a place that didn't even have you right. know, an outlet for what you wanted to do. And then you're like 22 years old starring on an MTV sketch show. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. I would say for sure there's no one way to do anything. And yeah, I think just, you know, being at a place that was figuring out what it was at the time mm-hmm. MTV and willing to take a chance on something different was pretty amazing. Yeah. How old are you? Like 18? Well, or? I was still in college right. when I started. I did a lot of internships. I worked at David Letterman in the summer after my oh. junior year and I worked at VH1, I worked at MTV and I just was psyched to be in the mix of anything it was really exciting for me you know? yeah if you're in an environment like this where you have to create a lot of material or you just make stuff and you like make it again and you get feedback and you you're realizing stuff is starting to work how important that is in terms of an early like building your craft up i remember during college because we we were doing these sketch live sketch shows a lot during college and i went i took a one semester away from nyu at brown university and Michael Showalter was at Brown. Right. Mm-hmm. And he and I, I was intimidated because I wasn't able to, I couldn't get myself to write, I felt like, to the level of the other people in the group. Hmm. And I was feeling very scared, sort of. Mike just told me, like, you just got to keep turning it out. Like, it's not, sometimes you have to focus less on quality and more on quantity. And huh. then that's, and, and I took that to heart and remembered this over and over. Like, it just, you know, if you write 10 sketches or 10 screenplays it's a much higher chance that one of them will be good you know right than if you write two yeah and it's the same with jokes in a scene Mm -hmm. and you know stabs at an edit or whatever and i always gravitated uh to the editing too yeah and that's carried into wayne days in children's hospital where you've done all this like kind of needle moving comedy you know you're able to do it with such like a small yeah i have gravitated towards like super low budget super fast Mm -hmm. making stuff and and sometimes some of my favorite funniest things, I think, have been like the absolute 
thrown off cheapest ones in a way because mm-hmm. you just don't you really don't have the ability to overthink and you are really going on instinct sometimes. I like going back and forth though because I also really like the idea of being able to craft something and think it through and give it time and resources over years Yeah, um, and still make it feel light and thrown off maybe. But um, You just uh, brought up instinct and that's also like doing stuff that you like as opposed to maybe doing stuff that you think other people will like. Is right. that something that you figured out right away or is that something that well being with that group the state was a real reinforcement of that notion for me of just sticking to your guns and i feel like i learned especially with comedy that guessing what someone else is going to laugh at is a real Mm. rough road you know Mm. uh for me and of course there's you know in feature filmmaking and in television we do test screenings and we do feedback and we get notes and there's all that but Overall, my main rudder has to be like, am I liking this? Is this something that makes me laugh? And then if I feel that way, I stick with it and push it through. And then a lot of the maybe weirder, more left of center things that I've been able to get made is just through a lot of just blinders, force of will saying, I believe in this. doesn't matter if people aren't listening, you know, like I, I, I want to get it through. And then a lot of the stuff I've done has been not, Uh, embraced by a large mainstream audience, but those who connect to it really connect to it. They really connect to it. It is satisfying on a personal level because people come up to me sometimes and they're like, oh my God, your work is so meaningful to me. It's my litmus test for how I, my friends, Mm -hmm. and that's wonderful. And it's just the trade-off is it just doesn't have the same volume of people, which translates into into income. (laughs) Yeah, but also, I mean, I think through that, doing the state and stuff like that and the live performances you are just so good at building a community well that's been a great gift too like the base of the state built into a larger community of lots of people that we love to work with and over the years and you know it's been my ongoing effort to really appreciate and continue to work with all those wonderful people and also to expand and not uh in every way not to get stale yeah when when you do expand what specifically are you taking from that kind of low stakes experimental filmmaking into the bigger budget comedies? Well, one of the things I learned when I did my first big studio film of two, uh, which was Role Models, I I was struck more than anything of how similar it was to what I'd done before mm. in terms of the actual, mm. the budget was many, many times more than anything I'd ever done. And yet the process was basically the same thing. You go out with the DP, you figure out what you're going to do, you plan it out ahead of time. You have a tech scout, you know, it, you, you talk to the actors, you figure out what the scene's about, you make it funnier. It's the real nuts and bolts of it are basically identical. There's, there's many elements that are wildly different, but they have to do more about the external things and marketing and needs yeah. of many departments and levels of notes. And, and are you more comfortable maybe on that bigger budget, whether it's a big pilot or whatever you're doing, of kind of taking that onset creative risk because you've done that so much with the other stuff? I'm sure I was. I mean, when I got one in, into doing role models, I had done two indie films, both of which had tanked. Mm. But I, I had gotten enough confidence in my own personality, I guess, just to be like, no, this is what I think we should do. And, you know, and it was, I'm glad about that because um, what I think worked about that movie, which was really the um, the only feature film that I made that really did well commercially, mm. um, was that we took a very somewhat by the numbers, but like, you know, s- s- solid idea that makes sense as a feature film for a, a bigger mass audience. And then carefully, but 
completely layered in our voice to it. Right. In a way that hopefully that served the larger story instead of trying to undercut it. Did you, like you mentioned, you did an independent, you did a studio film, um, which is Role Models and The Ten? Or? The Ten and then Wet Hot American Summer before okay. that. Did you feel just as unrestricted or are you making the same courageous choices on the studio film as those two projects? Well, or? no, of course not. I okay. mean, with The Ten and Wet Hot American Summer, and then later after that, um, they came together, right. we amazingly were in situations where we were given no notes by anyone. You know, mm. pretty much. Right. Um, and so we were like, let's just make whatever this is. And, and the ten, you know, The Ten is one of the weirdest movies ever. And, right, right. <laughs> you know, you can argue, had we had maybe a smart studio giving us some boundaries on The Ten, it might have been a better movie. Who knows? But certainly, we had, a, you know, we had Mary Parent, who had been the former head of Universal, was our producer and had a very, very, very strong voice in it. And also we're dealing with movie stars who have their votes and, you know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a whole nother bag. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot more cooks right. uh, in a studio film, but I think the job of the director is to try to filter all those voices into something cohesive and take charge and fight the right fights and let go of the things that as I get further along, I realize a lot of the trick is to learn which fights not to take on you know, and which hmm. things to relax about or which things to know that they can change later and again, hmm. or it's not going to make or break and focus. You got to pick your battles. Uh, mm -hmm. And then that's what I enjoyed so much about Wanderlust was having Jennifer Aniston, who just does the straight man so well. Well, that was a neat thing to do. Yeah. I mean, th I was so tickled that she was tickled by the script and uh, yeah, she came into this world. I mean, and it was literally that too, because we're all way away on location in Atlanta and she's like who are all these people <laughs> she married one of them so you had you had a moment though in that script where she's like hey would you like to see one of our rooms and then it cuts to her saying hey remember a moment ago mm -hmm. and then her reaction to that obviously was that in the script or is that oh yeah we okay. wrote the script totally on spec mm -hmm. without anybody you know we just wrote it in fact Marino and I came in we did a thing because we were both busy with our kids and our lives mm -hmm. and we decided to Uh, just take seven days in a row as if it was a shoot and we'd meet 7 a.m. and finish 7 p.m. every day oh. for a week and then have a first draft first draft at the end wow. from no idea and we had a terrible first draft but we had a first draft and then yeah. that's how we started making that movie and then for context role models was a movie that you came into like very late correct My role models yeah conversely had been there were i think 30 credited writers on the cover page by the time i had gotten there And then Ken Marino and Paul Rudd and I basically took it down to its foundation and rebuilt a different script with the guidance of Mary Parent. Right. And uh, that, uh, while prepping, like during the heavy, heavy pre-production of a studio feature, it was nuts. I imagine working so fast and loose on the other stuff, I'm sure that helped a lot in that tight time window. I was and am so used to moving fast that we often often finished our day like with hours to go and nothing to do mm. um and the crew was in love with me <laughs> yeah right and we in prep they were like so we'll take two days to shoot this scene i'm like dude I, i don't know how to do that like let's take a half a day I'm right like, you know. how long was the total in role models yeah uh i think it was like 40 some days i forget okay and then i was i literally was like how the what how am i gonna fill at this time <laughs> <laughs> 
I feel like a lot of that that process on studio films is just insurance in the editing room. I feel like just getting an endless amount of coverage where having done the other stuff, you have, you know what's going to work. And you're like, well, I know it's going to be fine. Yeah. I mean, there are very, very different styles and they're not, I don't think they're right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, and you know, Wanderlust was a great example of me learning the Judd Apatow style, um, which is a very, very different thing than what I do. Like in his thing, at least at the time, it was roll out the whole mag and just, you know, do, do the scripted scene once. Great. And now just start rolling and just let people just do whatever and see right. what happens. You know, just and then do it more and do it more and keep it rolling. Never cut, never cut. And just improv, 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 improv. Mm-hmm. And again, like he's made classic films that way. Um, it's not really the way I do it uh, right. as much. Um I've done scenes like that or moments like that. Sometimes out of necessity, we had a dinner scene in Role Models where we just didn't really have a script that we were happy with uh, yet. So we decided to just set up cameras around the table and see what happens. And it came out great. It was thousands of versions of it in the edit room. Wow. But overall, I prefer to be a little more planned out and Mm -hmm. think about it ahead of time and build a plan. And I think it makes things more cinematic and little more disciplined for my so in terms of like having an actor read a line it would be more like different variations of the same line for the editing or would it be try different lines the way i often work every situation is different but i Mm. i I often will have a scripted scene and instead of like going wildly off in various directions through the whole scene i definitely will for certain jokes will have maybe many alts to try depending on what it is but the more i go along the more you start you start to get a sense of what the best alt is before you even roll mm-hmm. but sometimes i'll do like three or four or whatever you know mm-hmm. and I'll, or and and i i certainly let actors improv too as much as they might want to but i what i don't do is say like just do whatever you want see what happens you know right. as, as often well mm-hmm. it shows because it feels so loose and so improvised like your work and then there will be this prop suddenly in that thing that feels like it was just off the cuff right it's like right. oh they planned this like how well wet hot american summer was a an example of people thought that was very improvised because mm-hmm. it was written to feel that way. Right. But it was it's really maybe more tightly scripted than most things I've done because it took us three years to raise the money and we kept rewriting and tightening and we had so little time and so little film to roll. Mm-hmm. And so we had many of those scenes were one take or two takes Wow. and sometimes one or two piece of coverage. We just did not have time to like try a bunch of things at all. Right. So people just had to trust that what we wrote down made sense mostly. Right. And and frankly, so much of what I've done since then is the similar, you know, things change and now it's video and now it's two cameras, but it's mm-hmm. still just as I just I'm just completing right now uh, this new show that's going to be on Netflix called Medical Police. Yeah. It's going to come out in the winter. And we had to move even faster like than we ever did on anything else, like, mm-hmm. even though it's big and it's got all over the world and stunts and stuff. And yet still, I, I can't believe how fast we had to go. And we often had to do things in one take. Just because you have a cast of like 40 people and... Just, you know, every every budget, every schedule is, has a different set of... And, you know, I think that all the companies that are making content now are realizing they don't just have to throw money at everything. Oh, no. They can say, you know, they, everybody has different leverage. And I think sometimes they're like, if you say... This is not necessarily what happened in medical police, but sure. often the case, a company will say to me, you have two choices, no or do it for nothing. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'll do it for nothing. <laughs> right. But you also have done some actual editing, actually physically doing the editing and how that's kind of influenced your your filmmaking and what you've learned from that. I always was interested in editing for whatever reason. I think part of what, what was that my first filmmaking, quote unquote, was when I was 
eight to 12 and I had a big hulking video camera that my dad brought from his office and it connected to two giant large machines just to turn on. And the, the first editing I did was, it, I forget what the feature was called, but you could tape a different thing over the thing that's on there and it only the picture would change. So you mm-hmm. could record a new shot over. That's an scene. overlay edit, right? Yeah, but it, but you could do it live. So okay. what I would do is I would like lip sync to a song. Then that now the soundtrack was set. And then you could splice in a picture of me like running down the street or something, you know. And then <laughs> let, then I then I eventually I got to two machines hooked together and you could tape one to the other. And then I went to the public access place in Cleveland and I would use the RM440 and learn how to do that wow. on a on three quarter inch. And then that's what I continued to edit on. Because when I was working at MTV as an intern, even I was starting to do things like producing and editing little news pieces and little packages. And of course, I'm doing stuff in college and I learned how to edit on a Steambeck and mm. I did my short film on a Steambeck, which I thrilled to have that experience, but hope so glad I will never do again. Um, carrying trims around in the hot city. Then uh, during the state, we were editing the same way on three quarter inch RM440 back and forth, wow. taping to tape until the second season they had an Avid that we had access to. Um, this is 1992 or three, somewhere in there. Huh. And I spent a weekend, I hold myself up and learned the Avid and made this little sketch of the opening credits of the show, but with splicing in my own picture, like every frame in different ways, or like old pictures of myself or clips of myself. Wow. And uh, just as a joke for the crew to look at on Monday, and then it, we ended up using it on the show. Yeah. So I've, I've basically continued to you know, uh, work as an uncredited co-editor on everything I've done. Mm-hmm. sometimes less so but right right now the process i do like on medical police great editors i always have great editors but they um they'll send me a cut i'll make voluminous notes but a certain percentage of my notes are here's how i would do this scene check mm-hmm. it out and you know we're all on the same shared thing this is avid or is this premiere what avid okay the avid i use avid at work and final cut at home Okay, Final Cut 10 or Final yeah, Cut 7? Final Cut 10. And I love, I'm just a nerd and I love to like learn how to do things fast and figure it out. And I, so I love editing and I've done it always. And then what specific, like how has something you've edited, anything you've actually physically done, like the episodes of Wayne Days, where you've learned something about directing from that or acting or writing? Or... Oh, well, I mean, it's just constant. I mean, I, I feel like by really seeing the footage and seeing what, how things work and don't work, mm-hmm. You learn about every aspect of filmmaking. I'm surprised more editors don't become directors. I mean, many do, but right. it seems like one of the more obvious paths. Yeah. Um, I think maybe just different personalities gravitate to those because the difference being you're commanding an army of 100 on a set. But right. It's the communication, I think, that maybe editors, they're really good at seeing the story and right. being able to put it together. But being able to communicate something without actually doing it, right. is, that's a whole different challenge. And that's why, I mean, I do fantasize about doing things like um, Robert Rodriguez or Soderbergh, where like, I truly do the whole thing myself. Yeah, yeah well, you um, do it. And I have done it on a small scale all the time. But on a big scale, I really like having the partner of someone who wasn't on set, has right. no relationship to the material, and is looking at it from another perspective. Well, let's get to... Wet Hot, before we get into the scene, can you sort of set up a little bit the production side of this? Like how many days did you shoot? Do you remember how much footage you, sh- you shot on 35? We shot on 35. Single camera? Single camera. Okay. Um, it was 28 days plus we did one sort of 
half pickup day later in post. Um, it was pouring rain almost every single day. Right. It was a $1.8 million total budget. Wow. Um, we shot in the summer camp in Pennsylvania in the early spring, and it was very cold. Shooting ratio? Any guess? Shooting ratio was low. I don't remember exactly. Okay. But I know that I remember our producer, Howard Bernstein, coming up to me a third of the way through the shoot and being like, you got to shoot a lot less. Oh, really? We're running out of film. Whoa. <laughs> it's like, all right. And uh, it's funny. I, I, for some reason, this sticks in my mind. He was saying that, and it was on the day that we shot this scene where the Janine Garofalo has an exchange with the nurse in a car as, as they're huh. driving away. And I realized that we were on the wrong side of the line for mm. the reverse. Um, and we only had done one take. And I, I was at that moment going, well, anyway, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still, it's in the movie exactly that way. And, but it's one of those psychological things where you don't really get jarred by it just because you don't. Did you get cutaways for that? Like shots of the car radio or I don't know, something to hide it with? No. Oh, Rex, there's no film. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah, the, the, we had a shot list that went in every day and cut it down to a third of it and then shot that. It's so funny because yeah. you could get away with anything, like literally. But then to be in that position where it's like, oh, we're breaking the line. It's like it, you could you've established it's fine. But I can see how that would just be jarring. Even well, the audience wouldn't really know. We looked at it like, do we flip it? Da, da, da. But I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, crossing the line sometimes just based on any number of factors doesn't really jar you. Yeah. Just the, right. the, at the end of the day, it's just how it looks. And it or it's it's how engaged you are in the story. Yeah. I mean, yeah. overall, I don't recommend <laughs> crossing the line without knowing how you're doing it or why. And yeah. it's so, yeah, with film students, you get that all the time. It's like, oh, it's like you broke the line, but they don't know that they did. Right. And it's like your scene's jarring and not doesn't work. It's like, well, they did it in Wet Hot. It's like, ah, uh, they knew. Well, I can't tell you how, of, how often sometimes I've been on a set and we're trying to understand the line of, like, what you would think of as absolute basic one-on-one. And I'm working with a professional script supervisor, mm-hmm. myself, the DP, the AD, and we're all sort of, not sure like wait but if she's looking this way (laughs) especially when you're doing a lot of cheating and you're shooting both the same direction and all that which i do all the time because we can't build a big set that's the front of it that's the puzzle yeah so when we did the podcast a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. ago we looked at a specific scene where we go from the river from a raft should i pull up that scene yeah let's do it so at this point of the podcast we looked at the scene and the insights we got from David were just incredible. But I got to admit, we did a bad job describing what we were looking at most of the time. We just got carried away. So my recommendation would be that maybe you stop the podcast here and just watch the scene on YouTube. We'll include a link. But if you can, here's a summary. So it's the infamous motorbike chase scene in Wet Hot American Summer. It starts with Joe Lotrugilio on a river raft with a bunch of kids. He jumps off crawls onto the riverbank to steal a motorbike from a random couple in a tent. So Joe drives off and chases Ken Marino down a forest road. At some point, there's a rabbit crossing the street, and we cut back and forth between Joe on the bike and Ken sort of running. He's, he's on a process trailer pretending to run. The scene ends when there's a hay bale in the middle of the road, and Joe ends up jumping over it, while Ken stops his bike and has no clue what to do to get around it. So with that in mind, here's David's analysis and what really happened during the shooting and editing of the scene. The great action scene. Definitely have a couple of questions that we asked during the podcast. Like, did this I do like that scene a lot. Yeah. Um, that was our big question. Like that very first shot where Joe, right? That's his name? He's, Joe Luchilio, yeah. yeah. Up until you guys did the podcast, I hadn't thought about it in that much detail. <laughs> um, probably since we made it. 
I mean, you know, it was my first time on a set with a crew. Yeah. I'd never shot anything the regular, the real way. I'd only done with my, my own camera on my shoulder. Because yeah. mm-hmm. Michael Jan did the more real shoots for the state. But um, I love it, too. I do like this movie. How big was the crew? The crew was small. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't know the number, but it was definitely there. But it was, um, you know, it was your basic, at the time, indie film crew. It was yeah. whatever we absolutely needed. All right, question number one. Is this raft free-floating, or is there like a line in the water that's directing? I definitely, no. There was no line. They wow. just did it. I mean, it was the raft this is exactly a classic thing of where there's no chance in hell they would ever let us do this now. Yeah. These kids, you know, just, <laughs> are you kidding me? There's so many things that we probably did on this shoot that like just today's standards of filmmaking would be like not. A ch- I mean, we had these kids over a, a, a waterfall. Yeah. It was nuts. And this is like 2002, though, right? 2000. Wow. Is this a real rock right there? Yeah, this is all... It, it's funny, I was laughing so hard. This is what made me t- tweet you guys, I think, because yeah. I was laughing so hard. It was, like, it was probably like a rigged thing. And, no, no, this was like one take, and you were like, they, had, wow. they must have planned this out a lot. Right. I think maybe they did this twice, but he like, just did it. There's no, there's no trick <laughs> at all. Was there coverage, or were you just like, this is it? This is it. Wow. Well, then there's a whole scene. If you look here, watch right there. See, see the background in the tent there? That's me and Carrie Kenny. Oh, my God. Uh, and, okay. and when he drives off, she and I have this whole deleted scene, which is a complete <laughs> detour about nothing. This was my cameo in my own movie. In editing, we were like, even I was like, it's too much of a detour. It's just we're late in the film. And it's fun to have these little diversions. But Jesus Christ. <laughs> so in this shot, he actually would drive off. Wait, let me... would have kept oh, going. no, no. Yeah, but no, he never... You were you were correct that never could Joe drive a motorcycle. Okay. <laughs> I don't think they would have let him and he had no clue how. Okay. And so we just pretended that he... That's why he's like looking at the dials and like, I'm going to get started. So specifically, we're talking about the scene where the raft is floating down the river and Joe LaTulio gets on the motorcycle. Right, yes. It's about 40 minutes into the film. It that's looks like. 40 minutes 40 minutes and film. 45 seconds where he's getting on the motorcycle. On the leader nice. free. I have one last question about that rock. Did you, when you blocked the scene, was that a plan that he steadies himself or this is just in the spur of the moment? I honestly feel like to the best of my abilities of memories, remembering this, we didn't even, we were just like, get in the boat and get out. Like, okay. <laughs> I don't even remember the rock ever coming up. Okay. It seems like he's just behaving it just, truthfully. It just seems like it's the, the one thing that's stopping him from falling in the water. Or right. the mark. It seems like the mark, if anything. I mean, this was, yeah, this was the, one of the only scenes we shot that wasn't literally at the camp. We like drove 20 minutes to a river. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I will, the caveat of, of course, anything like this is memory is so fallible. We know right. that, but that's, I'm giving you the best of my remembrance. All right, cool. Yeah. And then we had this whole other scene, which we cut right there. And then you cut the can. <laughs> it's on the DVD if you want to see it. Yeah. And then here's Marino and then, yeah. So now our... Michael Showalter and I, just the concept was, and I think the script just says, a big motorcycle versus guy on foot chasing. Yeah. And that's all that's said. <laughs> and then me and Ben Weinstein, the cinematographer, um, just put together the thing. Now, the other thing I'm just remembering is, as you can see, it's raining. Yeah. Pouring. I mean, you can't see it as well because it doesn't show up on 35, which mm-hmm. is great, but it's fully raining. Right. And we had actually canceled this shoot day. It was a Friday and we had, were shooting six day weeks and the Saturday, the next day 
was the day that we were supposed to go out and shoot this chase scene. And the forecast was for it to pour even harder than it had been. So we canceled the day and let everyone go home for a two-day weekend. And of course, that Saturday was perfect, <laughs> even light, like beautiful, the only weather like that in the entire time. And we wow. didn't shoot. Mm. Anyway, so then we go out here this today, and it is raining. So here we go. <laughs> and we're on this road. These moving shots... Is this? Are you on a pickup truck? Are you on no, some it, process? Uh, yes, it was a it was a type of a process trailer. Okay. And Joe was I don't even know now that yeah this must have been right on the edge of it right. because Joe was just on the motorcycle which was secured on the process trailer. Yeah. And we're looking at his foot over the street moving underneath it. Yeah, and to me, part of the joke was that you sort of should yeah. know that. <laughs> okay, what's in the background there in that shot? Is that just a clearing? No, that looks like a truck, this, you mean? Yeah, that's, I always thought that's like the process trailer. No. In... Well, I think that was, I don't know what it is, but it, I think that was literally just a car that was driving by. It's okay. an 80s production designed car just for David so there Wayne's is no, perfection. there's no motorbike in that shot. When you took that shot. Oh, uh, no, not that, no. I think we were just like, shoot him running, shoot him on the bike, back and forth. Yeah, which is the joke. And then you guys talked about on your thing, which you were totally right. We just literally threw the rabbit out there. <laughs> hope that he did something. It's <laughs> perfect. I think he did like two or three times. Maybe. Did you have an animal wrangler there or that's just the PA that picked up? No, rabbit? I think there was like somebody, you know, we were shooting in Pennsylvania where there was really no filmmaking. Nobody was really, you know, so we, had, we hired somebody who said I'm an animal wrangler. And, yeah, right. Okay, so the relationships in these shots, obviously, right. there's some continuity issue. Is that the joke yes. that you already saw in the shooting or in the editing? Uh, probably half and half. I mean, like, we were, we basically were like, set up the process trailer and let's see what happens. And I'm like, oh, go closer. You know, like, oh, that's weird. Do that. And then definitely it was, I knew that there would be some weird spatial things. Like, th this shot was not planned at the time until we realized like, Oh, just go from that to that. And it's so, I mean, obviously, Oh, I know what it was. I think they must've had Joe on the actual ground and then somehow dragging him somehow like, um, fastened to the trailer. Right. Like jet ski style. Kind Cause of. <laughs> he was obviously so much higher, right? <laughs> like five feet higher than he would be. <laughs> right. What is he running on? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. See? He's just doing, he's just, pretending to run but they so he's on been. the process trailer yeah his feet are still and he's on the process trailer yeah, yeah. and there's back and forth no treadmill i was oh, no, no, no 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 no. there's no budget for a rock or treadmill on this film it might have been that joe was on something yeah that it's the wheels of the motorcycle weren't turning but the motorcycle was on a lower wheeled thing behind the process right. trailer or something yeah okay so we're at the hay bale yeah and this was basically was as scripted okay um i think it was a last minute thing to undercrank and go slow-mo which i can't believe we didn't think of before okay nice. um and then marino always just sell, sells it and makes it great and then yes here we just very bla so brazenly beautiful. use the stunt guy planning it in the shooting were you like that's hilarious i mean he's acting yes. it out well because like, like this shot we easily could have put joe in there for this right yeah no that's what's so lovely about but it But we didn't but so you knew filming it yeah like push it and we're totally going to use this this shot that's i don't so love funny. as much because it's, really? Well, it's if so... I did it again, I wouldn't be on such a wide lens with nothing in the background. But it's so period perfect. Yeah. You it, know, it just looks like the 80s movie that, and yeah. it, when it fails a little bit. Well, I mean, always... a lot of, yeah, a lot of what 
is charming about this movie is the happy accidents of first time filmmakers, like stumbling on things that turned out to be kind of funny. Yeah. Right. So in the, in your first rendition of this scene, it was longer. You said there's certain stuff that you okay, cut so out. I have one cut that I don't know how I actually have not watched it. So this is the July 2000 cut of the film, which as I just mentioned, I have not seen myself since probably July 2000. And I just dug, I happened to find it, and it's the only rough cut that I know of that I have, except for unless there's a VHS somewhere. So here, well, let's just want to watch it. Yeah, that's sure. it. It might be exactly the same. So it might be like Geraldo's vaults. Like, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Victor took the mask. Wait, I can see a rope now. I want Victor back. Yeah, we all want him back, Sammy, but he's not coming back. The name is Sammy. We'll die without him. By the way, this is the only, as, as, as I think, I'm pretty sure, this is the only time in the entire movie we used a lav mic. Okay. Um, now, wow. in, in movies, every single scene, every actor has lav mics. This, time, this one was the only scene. And you have these kids just having to nail this one take, right? Yep. Well, I think it was two. Okay. But still. Fine. You're right. I'll find the son of a gun. I'll bring him back here if it's the last thing I do. Get her alive. Alive. You want him alive. <laughs> and there's a spot where there's a kid that looks okay. into the camera. Right here. So far, it looks the same. Yeah. Like I said, it might literally have already been figured out by then. I don't know. The music's the same. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is different. <laughs> you know you can't do that. Yeah. Just watch me. Oh. <laughs> Looks like he left frame there. I guess he did. I was wrong. <laughs> okay, yeah, so that's shot. such a stuntman See, setting that, that up. It's interesting. So you get, I, I, that's me and Carrie yeah, Kenny. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and it's like, what happened? He stole my motorbike. So by this point, I guess we had decided to cut the long scene of us talking about nothing. Yeah. Um, but we kept that little piece of it at that point. Right. Clearly. The Hitchcock cameo. So I'm going back. My motorbike. <laughs> I can't get it oh, back. Maybe not. There's more. $2,500 for that thing. Now what the hell am I supposed to do? <laughs> you calm down. You're not the one who's paying monthly interest on a loan for a brand new goddamn motorbike. Hey, I'm not the one who stole it. I know. I'm sorry. I just, I didn't mean to snap at you. I'm sorry. It's just that it's very difficult. And, and plus the arthritis and you know, the dreams of med school. I just don't know where that money is going to come from. Paco, listen. I can wait for medical school. You don't have to worry about that. And when we get back home to Prague, I'm going to buy you a brand new motorbike. With what money? With what money? With Deutschmark checks, which we exchange <laughs> over the black market, and then we buy our money. So much. Isn't that hard? <laughs> it's just such, such a great aside, because there's so much like story-intensive detail. Like, what the heck? It just doesn't matter at all. Oh my god! It doesn't even go back to the chase. It goes to Showalter. Yeah, weird. To the kids play baseball. That was so, yeah. That was give me like chills watching that scene. That's so weird. I remember it was so loud yeah. that it was what bummed me out. It was the 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 waterfall was so loud that it was hard for me to like be in the scene. Right. Like, yeah. I had to just scream to be heard. Right. It would have been funny to intercut that with the chase. <laughs> like it's just. Do you, have, might, do you remember that at some point? Having several kind of like tangents like this in the first cut of characters that don't really appear. That was the biggest one. Okay. Um, we had in the script once we had a a, a foreign counselor from um, the UK 
who was playing ping pong. This was we cut this long before right. we shot it. Yeah. And because we had to cut a lot of characters just for budget. And, right. And he was like, uh, you know, you kids, I hate this camp. Petrol, lorry, chips. <laughs> just started saying <laughs> things that British people say. But the funny thing is those asides kind of in your work tend to pay off, especially in what hot American summer, like the ra- things that seem like random things. Somehow. Well, especially 16 years later on Netflix, they pay right. off. <laughs> but um, yes, that, that, exactly. Th- this one was designed to be a total nothing left turn just right. for kicks. And, and especially this late in the film, we all agreed, okay, we don't need that. But the interesting thing also is that that's the only appearance you have as that character in the film, right? Do you show yeah, up? totally. Yeah, but then that's amazing because it shows a director who's actually willing to cut himself out of the movie to make the film better i did it in i did it also in feel stupid gesture well that maybe Mm -hmm. next time you'll know like wait a second if i want to play this character maybe this scene needs to go sometimes yeah i try to strategize (laughs) putting myself in things that won't get cut and i sometimes fail (laughs) sometimes i succeed sometimes i fail now that wanderlust cameo is amazing all right, so we're in a completely different Yeah, so scene. basically in this cut of the film, yeah, it goes from that we just started the chasing without it actually happening to the baseball game. Yeah. I can't believe we would have cut it out of the hole. And then here's uh, okay, the Okay, so it's completely wedding, gone, huh? And now the capture the flag. So it's been like 5 minutes now. <laughs> and now touching base with every character. After capture the flag. And oh, then Cooper. <laughs> oh wait, here's something that I don't think was in the actual movie. The Bradley Cooper Emmy Polar scene. Yes, my kids are a bunch of amateurs, and the last thing I need today is some diabetic. Oh yeah, didn't need that. Um, and this with the professor and the kids, and then she's got moose hair, and they walk and talk, and then the, the thing with the thing, and more capture the flag. <laughs> and then they kiss, and then they capture the flag. Oh, oh we're and back. Back to the chase there. And what's the time cut? So after they. So this is 58 minutes into this cut, 45 minutes, which it tur- which is where it was in the final movie. Mm-hmm. But then the actual chase doesn't happen until 58 minutes. So all this happened while the chase in story time. Is going on right. Basically, it's the meanwhile at the ranch. The condensing of right. the time frame and the is one of the jokes in the movie. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. How much happens? And <laughs> we worked all that out before. We're like, this is. We're like, this is at two thirty-eight p.m. And that's so funny. And then we were laughing so much at our little chart that we actually put some of them in the movie as an afterthought. Oh. Right. Okay. <laughs> And see, the music in so many cases was there from the get-go. Yeah, this pays off differently seeing him. It's that much later. Did you have issues with music clearances on this? It was a totally different world. Yeah, you could do step deals at the time, so you could be like pay like forty bucks for it, and then when you make money, they make money. Yeah. No longer. The cut's a little different. A little bit. It's pretty similar, though. Yeah. <laughs> the big revelation is how much it was split up. Yeah. Yeah. And just the effect that has. 
you know... Yeah, it's pretty much the same. Huh? I kind of feel like, though, what the good thing about having it together is that you you lose the momentum of the joke, I feel like. Like, it's all set up on the motorcycle. Yeah. And the audience is having to catch up oh, when I would it goes back to definitely him. definitely make that same... Yeah, I wonder if you would even remember why he's chasing... I mean, it's such a weird reason. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why we did it that way then, but... So um, did you figure out the shooting of the scene? You said it wasn't really in the script. It was just like a line or two saying it's yeah. some, some form of... I mean, of I guess your out. listeners can just purchase the shooting script uh, book that we just released. Oh, yeah. wow. Wet Hot American Summer, the annotated screenplay. <laughs> and you can find out. Did you sort of choreograph it in on the day of shooting? Ben Weinstein and I shotlisted the whole thing before we started shooting. Okay. Basically. I mean, yeah, I think we did. Did you do shotlist and storyboards or just shotlist? We did a few storyboards. I mean, like just, you know with stick figures yeah but i probably have some a shot list so at this point when is going through a bunch of his computer files and he ends up at the actual shot list for that particular scene it looks like a word document with just a list of shot numbers plus a description of each camera setup who was the dp name's ben weinstein um he, and this was your first collaboration or uh yes um and last but not because I didn't like him, is he he went on very quickly to start directing commercials, okay, and uh, doing other things. <clears throat> Were you creating these shot lists? You said you do that before the shoot. Was it on location or was it? Yeah, I mean, we we were out there on the camp for a little while before we shot, and uh, I'm sure we revised it more. I mean, the, I have a much more sort of organized system now. Yeah. Here we go. Oh my God! Actually, found it. I'm so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Neil chases Victor, runner versus motorcycle chase. High hat on ground, haystack in foreground, Victor approaches. Static, profile, low, long shot, low angle, slow-mo, Victor jumps over the bush. Static, profile, low, long shot, low angle, slow-mo, Neil, stunt skids out. What bush? <laughs> Neil defeated, watches Victor, Victor runs on camera, looks back, keeps running. Static, both screech around, same corner by rocker sign. Like that's one that looks like we didn't do. Well, it also sounds like you guys were planning on more production design, like, oh, Bush is in, you know, they're off-road or something. Yeah. And then it was like, what's the weirdest, funniest thing Is we there could the do? white shot in there with a rabbit? Is that on the list? No, well, we're, we're th this is still going. So. Oh, okay. Then the next moment, from opposite corner process trailer, tracking profile, slightly frontal of Neil on motorcycle, whip forward right to where Victor would be, mm -hmm. whip back, tracking profile of Neil on cycle, same sub. Oh, we were going to do, we were going to hide a cut in the whip, but we did oh. ended up... We ended up just doing it real. Nice. Press trailer frontal, close up frontal. There's no way we did all these things. Bar, we, must, we simplified this massively before we shot it, obviously. Bar in the background center, blah, blah, blah. Motorcycle wheels, didn't get that. <laughs> Cycle behind Victor's feet, front pickup, blah, 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 blah. Like all these things we never did. Then country road, camera from passenger seat on Victor, cover the whole scene. Close up, pushing, handheld into face. Did you shoot this entire sequence in a half day or a full day? I thought we had done the raft part on the same day. But okay. Who the who knows? Hmm. In the book, there's some shot lists and other little documents and stuff. Showalter was like, "Why would you put that in there? No one will care. We care. So prove me wrong. <laughs> yeah, take that, Showalter. Okay, so really interesting to see it specifically like how the process is from designing the shot list from the script, designing the shot list, cutting the first cut to what it ends up being in the movie. Can you talk a little bit about the entire post-production process? 
of Wet Hot. Wet Hot. Yeah. So also that editor, because we, it's like the editor of like The Wire and like all this heavy drama. After that, yeah. And then Wet Hot. Well, she's a great editor. Her name is um, Meg Redeker. And it was interesting because I was not used to editing while I'm sitting in the room watching someone else do it. Right. You yeah. know? And so I actually, at first, at a point, got frustrated. I'm like, you know, and then we actually sort of had to sit down at a certain point and we worked out a different system where... We certainly didn't have two avids. That was not in the right. cards, but we switched back and forth. Sometimes she'd sit on the couch and I would do it and she would give me thoughts as I'm editing. Very cool. And then we'd go back and forth. Did you come into the editing room right away or was there a phase where she was working on scenes on her own? She was actually in one of the cabins at the camp the okay. whole time wow. cutting. And so I would go in there at night a lot and sit with her um, and look at stuff. Uh-huh. And um, at the time, that's just such an ordeal. It seems like we're now, it's like, oh, do you have a MacBook Pro? And Right. Oh, yeah. No, this was a whole <laughs> setup to make that happen. Um, and, but it was cool. And so she was sleeping in the bunk. You know, everyone was, she literally was sleeping in this cabin and had her editing set up and her assistant there, I think. Yeah. Wow. It was great. It was an amazing thing to have that because there was no going back really for much. Right. Yeah. So she caught things that we picked up. and okay. okay. So it had an influence on production, having an yeah. editor on set. Yeah, it was it was great, and um, I wish more often we could do the old fashioned thing of everyone sits and watches all the dailies each yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I can't imagine having the uh, energy to do that, but it was so helpful to actually watch, uh, look at the dailies before you're looking at your first cut. You know? Right, especially for a movie that's such a tonal, you know, swing for the fences. It must have been invaluable to see how it's playing out and like. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Although we didn't, the tonal thing. You didn't really know until you put it all together anyway. Yeah. Okay. And it was, a lot of these early cuts were, you know, as always, not good. Like, it, I don't think it played funny at all. At huh. time, and I think it's so much in the editing, you know. How long uh, was um, the turnaround to be actually see dailies? Like you shot it, was it within 24 hours, 48 hours? Well, it was a three-hour drive okay. to Manhattan where the dailies were being processed. Mm. So I think whatever it was. Yeah, it was like normal processing time at the time. Yeah. But then we had to add in the, the three-hour round right. trip. So you would actually go to the facility in the screening room to watch your dailies? No, 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 no. Okay. We never watched any dailies. Oh, okay. She got digitized footage, uh, however she got it, yeah. into right. the Avid, I guess somewhere between one and two days after we shot it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then by the time she processed it, whatever, yeah. And it fits, though, for the movie's... It's almost like that production style fit and it influenced the film because you're making a movie mocking movies that were made that way yes. right at the time. So it's kind of like you were creatively hindered in a way that helped it be more authentic. Yes, in a way that's very true. How did that translate, though, then doing it on Netflix? One of the funny things about it is one of my favorite comedies growing up was Caddyshack. Right. And so I chose that movie to really study like the shots and how it was done when... I didn't realize until now that like Caddyshack is one of the most sloppy movies ever made. Like, like <laughs> this totally like made by a director who had at the time really no idea what he's doing. So it was a funny that that was my Bible of how to shoot. <laughs> and then you made the making of Caddyshack. And then I, yes, I recreated the making of Caddyshack in the movie, Feudal and Stupid Gesture, which was quite a joy, quite a, a thrill. Yeah, and so then when you jump forward, did you were you like we're going to maintain the same editing process? Get it, get an avid from you know two thousand to do the Netflix remake? No, definitely <laughs> it not. Just goes Daniel Day Lewis. It couldn't. I mean, yeah, the, with with the Wet Hot Netflix show, we shot that with two, often three cameras, obviously digital. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we went way faster than we did on Wet Hot, which itself was fast. We did so much trickery, so many VFX just for to save time on set in different huh. ways. It was a very, you know, wildly different production. And we also shot it in Malibu, California. Oh, my God. Um, at a ranch. And huh. so we had to really make it look like an East Coast camp in any way we could think of. There were no cabins. We built two cabins. It was like a totally different way to make the same looking thing. And more expensive, probably? Oh, way more expensive. Although, in pound for pound, not that much more expensive, actually. Because right. we made eight 30-minute episodes. Yeah. So why not just go to the East Coast? Just because of actors' schedules? Or? Yep. I mean, at that, by the time we got to make it, both Michael Schalter and I now lived in L.A. Right. Our families were here. Yeah. And every act, not every actor, but many, many of the actors had made it their way out here as well. Yeah. And our production company was here. Netflix was here. So it just didn't... It, Shooting in LA was really the only thing we considered. Right. Um, unfortunately, because I, you know, we it was very tough, and we would spent a lot of resources. Just you know, for example, there's no, there are no lakes in Southern California. That's a good point. We had to limit, you know, the the wet hot. For me, my real summer camp experience, which is the main source of wet hot, is all about the lake. Mm-hmm. Um. So, but in our scripting, we had to limit severely any thought of seeing the lake and we went i think to some lake somewhere wow. for one or two shots that we put in the miniseries right okay i want to now that we've talked about one specific example looking back at it now how has your process working with editors changed you're working on a tv show now i assume that's different than working on a feature and then also how do you now collaborate with editors on your project i'm always reinventing it every time just to like see if, how we can do better but now I mean, I think it's like, as I mentioned, I, I try to let editors do their thing more than I have in the past. I, and it depends on the editor. Every editor is so different in yeah. the way that they work and their style. Do you have one editor that you've worked on repeatedly and that you tr seek out? I have several that I've worked with repeatedly yeah. and that I seek out, but they're often, you can't always get them, right. you know? Yeah. Um, but then I, then I then meet new editors that I love. And so, for example, I've had some stuff like this guy, Rob Nassau and Jamie Gross, And Eric Kissack are three editors that have worked on many, many projects with me over right. many years. And then none of them were available for mm -hmm. medical police. But I worked with a team of other editors that were amazing. And so it, I, I'm loving meeting new people. And everyone has a different take and different way of doing it. And when I work with a new editor, I quickly try to demonstrate to them that I know what I'm talking about and that I'm going to respect their process and their creativity. About the editing process of Futile and Stupid Gesture, I, I kind of pulling that together, I understand that... You took a huge break on that? Right. Um, that was an interesting... We, we shot that movie, and then we got it to a director's cut, mm. and then shut it down. This was all on purpose and scheduled, right. because we then had to write, shoot, post, and deliver all of Wet Hot, wow. the second season, mm. and get that out the door before we could return, because it was a, much of the same team. Right. But me in particular, you know, yeah. so we had to then return to fetal and super gesture many months, many months later. Hmm. And then we did uh, some reshoots on that and went back into post and we also lost our editor. Right. Um, and so we brought in, uh, we lost one of my stalwarts and brought in another of my stalwarts uh, to do that phase of it. And how did that influence, do you prefer, because that's very similar, I feel like to Woody Allen's process where there's a break. Maybe I'm, I Love it. I mm. wish all movies could do that. And we also did that more accidentally on They Came Together. 
Okay. Where we had got to a director's cut and the studio hands had changed and nobody was interested in the movie really. And they forgot Mm -hmm. about us. And I ended up doing children's hospital for a season. Yeah. It just sort of sat there for a long, long time. And during that time though, we were churning about how do you do this? And we completely rebuilt the movie from scratch in a totally new format uh, after this long break. And if, if not for the break, it would have been a far worse movie. And I'm I'm totally fascinated by that movie. And I recommend if you are in a relationship that you think is weird, that you pretend you found this rom-com oh, yeah. with Amy Poehler and Paul Rudd that you want to watch with the person. And then I was like, it's so cool they did that. And then towards the end, I was like, oh shit, are they okay? Like what, how do they market this? Like what happens when you sell a movie this way in theaters? And uh, What happens is you don't market it and it, <laughs> it dies quickly <laughs> but um i love it too and i i thank you and i, I think that movie um like i said you know the, the whole movie is told in a in flashback but by four people around a dinner table which came a, as an idea after long late late in post after this long break oh really and we had no money the studio had no interest in supporting us any further but we're like okay we're cobbled together enough to get eight hours of shooting one day three cameras wow. And four actors around a table, that's the most we could do. But it ended up being a third of the running time of the film. And we cut out a solid half of what we had shot. Huh. So, yeah. So what was it before? Because I feel like that framing device adds so much I know. It's everything. It. I know. Well, it was just the movie. It was just showing the story in a more traditional, linear way. Without the winking, I guess. No, it had it, all the material was the material. Right. It was still a very weird, you know, Showalter Wayne kind of movie yeah but i think you didn't have a way in that right. was the problem it's it, even people who like our stuff had trouble yeah can, like locking into what we're doing and so that's what that framing device added which was everything and that was something where the whole infrastructure of making the movie was done I, I was like you know on hiatus not not didn't exist right and so i sat on a laptop uh i remember in new york for a month and created the new structure of the movie using just photos of Bill Hader and Paul Rudd and right. Amy Poehler. And, and I actually got UCB kids to imitate those actors huh. to put the lines in. And I created basically an animatic of what the new movie would look like. And I screened that for, I screened for the Lonely Island guys. And I was like, this is funny. And they were on the floor. And so then we had shot like, like two dozen scenes that day around the table. And that was another one. It was like, you can improv, but actually, let's just shoot this because we have no time. <laughs> yeah. I heard you say in one of the podcasts that I listened to in preparation to this. Thank you for the, doing the preparation. Oh, you're very welcome. That you said sometimes it's really hard to do a cut down of an improv scene. Like it feels like just a cut down of a version. And that's one of the reasons why you'd rather like write the scene yeah. as opposed to trying to find the scene during the shooting. I think when it's done not well, I think some people who've taken that sort of recent style of like it's improv spontaneous right. that gives you so much. But if it's the, the, the pitfall of it is you feel viscerally that you're watching a cut down of a jam mm-hmm. session or an improv session instead of a scene. But I mean, like, and you, and you had that great editor from Curb Your Enthusiasm on, like... Roger Nygaard, yeah. To me, that's incredible. Like, I love that style, and that's perfect for that, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, you can see that part of what I love about Curb Your Enthusiasm is you know that they're doing that, and that's part of... There's a meta quality of, like, you can almost see them all about to crack up every time they're cut away, you know? Uh-huh. And that's great. That's its own thing. I think it depends on what it is. Like, not in my, not what I do. And I can't imagine the studio changing hands 
between cuts of they came together, like the cut without the framing device, so new people came in. Well, what it really was was that the they came together was part of an experiment at Lionsgate of like, can we do micro-budget comedies and see if that works, like mm -hmm. in the vein of um, big, big Fat Greek Wedding or something. Sure, right. <laughs> and while we were shooting, they decided, no, let's not do that, and they shut down that division. And so we're like, you know, they were like, finish the movie, but we'll see, you know, and that's wow. In terms of editing comedy, is there like some best practices that you figured out in a way? Like you're shooting it, you're building these, you're shooting these building blocks. Always put actors. in, like when there's something weird happening, put in a sound effect of a record scratch. Always do that. I'll do the pipe drop. And a big whoosh. And then... No, I'm joking. Definitely joking. Spens has a history with the record scratch where he hates it. It's his most wild sound effect. And I can't believe how many editors yesterday I put in. Take yeah. out the record scratch. Like, anyway. yeah. But, uh, okay, so best practice. What was the question I was preparing the cutting, joke? Like cutting comedy. What is things that you do on set to have these building blocks that you can play with in the editing? How do you, how do you make a joke work? I feel like ultimately comedy is an ephemeral art in a way like and that's i remember this i always think about this interview with woody allen where he's like you can teach a lot but either you're funny or you're not funny yeah and i feel like in a way making comedy has a similar element to it like if there was really a steps to it it would not it's different you know but i tend to think about telling the story what the characters want like all the basic stuff you would do for any scene in the shooting and the editing but then you sort of have to have like a simultaneous parallel track of knowing what the jokes are and how they're getting hit and when they're clear and making sure that they're being communicated and then giving options to yourself and on set which mm -hmm. it seems like that's del close's whole thing right is just treat it straight and then yeah Matt. And then how do you know when it feels like, okay, this is probably the best version of... Oh, you mean in, in the um, edit? Yeah, oh, like okay. you do a version of a joke and then you try to figure out whether that's the best version. Yeah, what I found is that um, Medical Police, for example, we have four EPs, four showrunners. And it's done. You shot 10 episodes? We or? shot 10 episodes in the wintertime and we've been posting them the whole this whole since then. Wow. Midway through the picture cutting process we screen all the episodes for an actual audience okay. of like 20 people that we bring to the office mm -hmm. so we usually we go through rounds and the, each round we discover a lot of stuff and so we have a director's cut producer's cut second producer's cut then we do a screening screening cut which mm -hmm. is another producer's cut kind of and then the studio cut and then the network cut wow and sometimes there's two studio cuts and it's like there's a lot of cuts but We realize like the nature of it that you keep figuring stuff out, you keep tightening or or loosening or whatever. And with comedy, you know, you find those little things. And like sometimes it's just like moving a music cue a second later, and you're like, oh my god, now it's funny, you know, or anything, anything in the sound mix or the or like repeating in your case, repeating something. Yeah, like that fourth time. Well, occasionally, <laughs> yeah, and occasionally I will pitch in the I will come up with an editing joke to put in the cut, and we've done that many times where I'm like. The joke is how we uh, clearly an editing room construction and that's the joke of it. And right. that's fun to do. And I, for every one of those that ends up in something, I've probably pitched five. You know? right. <laughs> so when, when you're working on an Apatow film, 
I know he has a very, and you talked about the amount of shooting that goes into it. Like I know dudes that have lugged like the 1.4 million feet of physical film. And, but the testing process, I feel like in his kind of community and the people he's mentored and stuff like Rogan is very specifically done. Yes. They'll do test screenings endlessly. Yeah. And they'll put the laugh track in the film. And we did that in, in, uh, Wanderlust. We, we tested and tested and tested and tested. And we also, often would do side-by-side screenings of two cuts at the same night, all with different jokes. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely similarly to the shooting style of Judd. I think that has resulted for him in many great things and it and did for Wanderlust too. However, it's not really my way that I would do it in a vacuum. Yeah, because your style seems like there's jokes where it's like, how, why did that work? Like stuff in Wayne days, like, how did you know? Well, yeah, and also I feel like the audible response of an audience is not the only thing that matters. And I know from watching mm-hmm. Wet Hot with audiences so many times, because it was my first movie, that there are many jokes that a full audience will laugh at, and then the next day they won't, even if it's the same cut. Right. So it's not an exact science, and I th- think you can get a little too carried away with looking at each and also the laugh here might be because of something that was set up 10 minutes ago in the movie Mm, and it's not always it's not a science but testing is important i just think everything in in perspective (laughs) yeah you're like your interest in short form like people talk about it but then you really like with wainy days and then children's hospital especially you're doing stuff that's incredibly short content i'm just curious what the approach is for that or the draw to that children's hospital was the series on adult swim 11 minutes long each episode, but the the shape of it and the storytelling of it was really like an hour-long drama. And there was usually at least four storylines in each of the 11-minute episodes and a large ensemble cast. And that challenge was absolutely catnip for me. It was so fun to like figure out how the hell do we fit all this into 11 minutes with jokes, with, you know. So, yeah, I do like that. I like the challenge of... uh, You would think I would be a really successful commercial director for that reason. Uh, But... um. My point simply is that I love, I, I do love doing that. And, and children's was one of the ultimate examples of like, how do you squeeze it down? And then we did that in our Stella shorts and yeah. in um, Weenie Days, as you said. And, oh. and I did take that into other, you know, into the longer form features, the same kind of discipline of like really being brutal about what you need and trying to, you know, I love movies where I feel like there isn't a frame that doesn't need to be there, you know? Yeah. Is there any... Thing that you have learned on your journey because it's you know you went to my journey this for, afternoon yeah for this <laughs> for your walk this afternoon no just your journey from because you just started working so fast yeah but yet you understand filmmaking so thoroughly i'm just curious where kind of like the mentors were what the big lessons you learned that you would it's funny you ask that because i one of my big missing pieces for me i feel like is mentor i never had really a lot of mentors hmm. I had people who've helped me out or I've, I've learned much more from my peers over the years from everyone in the state. I learned how to direct by watching Michael Jan a year younger than me in college direct. That's how I learned to direct. And I learned to write by watching the other guys in the state. write. And, um, I never really had people who were like on the next of the older generation or the really above my level teaching me. And I've always, I'm still looking to, to do that at age 50. Yeah. Um, but what was the question again? <laughs> no, I'm just curious, like what you would impart to people oh, starting um, out. And... I don't know. It's funny. I mean, from from a practical basis, I really wouldn't know because it was so different of a mm-hmm. business when I entered into it. Yeah. From a creative sort of learning basis, I would say um, don't limit yourself to the kinds of thinking that is important for this 
sort of work. L learning about everything is incredibly important. Every part of the the making of the process and every part of the world. And I think that the best filmmakers are, they know the most about history and philosophy and whatever. Yeah, it's totally I don't, true. but I'm, <laughs> I'm still getting to that too. But you can do magic. <laughs> I have to start reading books and stuff. All right. Very cool. Well, thank you again for opening up your house, opening up your timeline in a way, showing us all the cats. It's and my pleasure. Anytime. Absolutely. I wanted to sort of end on this note at the beginning. You said like, it's, important to make a lot of stuff sometimes quantity really leads to quality yeah. and um, that's kind of the motto that we have in the podcast in the channel i want to say thank you with this mug that oh says, my goodness just edit yeah. just edit and i love this feel free to bring that into your editing bay i'll bring it in <laughs> with my matcha in case they forget what they're there for exactly thank you guys and then when you work with your editors just Hold it up to them every once in a while. So just keep going. This is awesome. Thank you, guys. You're yeah, very well. fun. And you fit the philosophy so well because you just do it. And it's amazing. Listen, what can I say? Every day. Keep it going. Thank <laughs> you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah. A pleasure. Thank Cheers. you to Curter for the music. Subscribe to the podcast if you enjoy it. And as Sven always says, happy editing. Put your head between the speakers. There's no sane zone, so put your head between the speakers. Tune in next week.